Uh, I think you folks had an hour and a half of break. I had 15 minutes of not talking. And so um, I'm going to shake things up a little bit here and give you uh, an unexpected bonus for this. Not in the advertisement. No extra fee. And that is, it really is the culmination of this sequence, starting with the mindfulness of breathing, which can take you all the way with its own stages of practice, all the way to shamatha. The settling the mind, clearly, it's designed to settle the mind in its natural state, leads to shamatha. <clears throat> but there's a third method, uh, referred to by the Buddha as the Vijnana Kasina. He said this is the most profound of all shamatha methods. In the Mahamudra tradition, the Dzogchen tradition, they refer to this as the most profound of all shamatha practices. It's called awareness of awareness. It's called shamatha without a sign, shamatha without a basis, shamatha without an object. <clears throat> and I thought, why not? I can use a rest. <laughs> and so we're going to have one session of this. Uh, and then the second session will really much more segue into the topic for this afternoon, which will be the four measurables. So we'll have two back-to-back -back sessions, 24 minutes. The first one, awareness of awareness, still a shamatha practice. The second one will be quite a different ambience to it. Settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm. Settle your mind initially with mindfulness of breathing and any of the three methods. Just count 21 breaths or simply practice for a few minutes without counting if you prefer.
and let your eyes be at least partially open. Once again, rest your gaze evenly in the space in front of you. Evenly means not attending to an object on the left or the right, this or that. Resting in space, but taking nothing at all as an object. But recognizing that even as you're not deliberately attending to anything, Awareness continues. Now, as a preliminary exercise, one you will want to relinquish whenever it feels right, but as a preparatory exercise, maintain a peripheral awareness of the in and out breath. And during inhalation, arouse, concentrate, and invert your awareness drawing it away from all appearances to awareness, all sensory appearances, and even all mental appearances of thoughts, mental images. Invert your awareness even away from space itself and draw it right in upon itself as you inhale. Draw your awareness right in upon the sheer raw experience of awareness taking place. with no interest in anything else except for the experience of awareness. As you breathe out, relax from your core, utterly release, release your awareness into space. Just releasing out and out, taking nothing, Taking nothing as an object, just releasing into space. As you breathe in, arouse your attention, focus and concentrate, drawing awareness right in upon itself. Arouse and release a familiar rhythm. Whenever any type of thought arises, release it instantly. Let this be a flow of non-conceptual awareness.
throughout the course of the inversion and release of awareness, the arousal and the relaxation, gently and continuously sustain the awareness of awareness. Do not make it complicated. The awareness is already there. And simply be aware of that reality. It's by a process of elimination. Withdraw your awareness, your attention from all appearances to the mind, to your physical senses, to your mental awareness. Withdraw your interest and your attention from all appearances, from all objects. And attend to that which illuminates and knows them all. This flow of awareness, consciousness itself. Do you have a sense of there being an observer, someone in here, yourself, who's observing this process, the release into space, the inversion into awareness? Is there an agent, a subject, an observer here? As you invert your awareness, probe right into the very nature of that experience of being an observer and see what you see.
as you examine your own experience very closely, is there a sense of there being someone here who not only observes but who is controlling the agent that is inverting and releasing the awareness, someone actually doing it, you? Do you have a sense of being the agent who's controlling the mind, withdrawing and releasing the attention in this fashion? As you invert your awareness, draw it right in deeply into the core and observe, if you can, the agent that is withdrawing and releasing the mind and see what you see. The more deeply, the more probingly you invert your awareness, the more deeply release the awareness into space. Utter, utter release. And like a pendulum that gradually comes to rest in the middle, in the center, let the arc of this oscillation of your attention gradually subside. Until your awareness comes to rest in the center, where there's no sense of drawing it inwards or releasing it outwards, awareness has come to rest in its own place, illuminating itself, knowing itself. It is called the knowing of knowing. Rest there in that flow of awareness of awareness.
Awareness illuminates all appearances of all kinds. It is a distinct and unique characteristic of consciousness. It illuminates, it makes manifest appearances. And awareness has a quality of cognizance. Awareness knows. Rest in the sheer luminosity and the sheer cognizance of your own awareness. As always, if you get caught up in distraction, release. If you become nebulous, focus.
Settle your body in its natural state, the respiration in its natural rhythm, and for a little while, calm the mind with mindfulness of breathing, with or without counting as you see fit. According to Buddhist contemplatives, consciousness has two salient, distinctive, and defining characteristics. Consciousness illuminates, and consciousness knows. 
It makes manifest appearances and it knows what is appearing. In the practices thus far we've especially cultivated, we find this quality of knowing and gradually bringing greater vividness to that knowing. But the luminosity of awareness is not simply the brightness of attention. It is also the very wellspring of our imagination, the creativity of the mind, vision, innovation. So in this practice, this session, now we cross over the divide with a primary emphasis on manifesting and using the luminous aspect of the mind by way of imagination. And we return to the initial theme of Dharma, the practice of Dharma, being oriented towards the experience, the realization of (coughs) genuine happiness, tapping into the very wellsprings of well-being. So this session, as short as the others, will entail a series, a short series of questions, a repeated series of quests, a visionary quest, if you will. And the first question to be explored with your imagination, each of us individually and uniquely engaging in our own meditation, is to raise the question, how do you envision your own happiness? Not simply in terms of the hedonic, as important as as that is. What would make you truly happy? Bring you a sense of fulfillment, of meaning, of core satisfaction. to awareness your heart's desire. (coughs) Certainly having adequate food, clothing, shelter, medical care, all of these are very important. (coughs) But on the basis of having all of these material needs met, on that basis, what would bring you true happiness, genuine happiness? And in the spirit of loving-kindness, the first of the four immeasurables, with each out-breath, allow the yearning to arise. Be bold. (coughs) And allow the yearning to arise. May May I experience such flourishing, such happiness, 
well-being, fulfillment, choose your own word. But with each out-breath, arouse this yearning, this aspiration, may I be truly well and happy. And envision as clearly as you can what this would entail, knowing that this vision can and will change over time. Nothing carved in concrete. And if you'd like to let your imagination really play, symbolically, imagine this brightly shining mind. This luminous ground awareness. Symbolically as an orb of radiant white light at your heart in the center of the chest. Inexhaustible, incandescent. Symbolic, you may, you may go to the very ground, pristine awareness, Buddha nature, the very wellspring of all virtue, the wellspring, the deepest wellspring of genuine happiness. And with every out-breath, imagine light flowing from this orb of, heart, orb of light at your heart. As you arouse this yearning, may I be truly well and happy. Imagine this light permeating, saturating every cell of your body, pervading every aspect of your mind, filling your whole being. Imagine, knowing full well that you are letting your imagination play. Imagine realizing such fulfillment here and now, not as some distant goal. Such well-being is a type of fruition. It comes about as a result of causes and conditions coming together. So holding this vision in mind, let's raise a second question. In order for you to realize such fulfillment, 
what would you love to receive from the world around you? After all, it will not be possible to achieve this on your own in total isolation. None of us is, is independent. So to assist you, to help you realize your deepest potential, your highest ideals, what would you love to receive from the world around you, from those near and far, from the natural environment? Clearly the basic necessities, food, clothing, and so on. But what more? We can't do it on our own. Now with each in-breath, arouse the yearning, if you will. May I receive all that I truly need. In terms of all of the basic necessities and all other assistance that I need from other people, from the environment, enable me to realize my highest ideals, my heart's desire. And with each in-breath, symbolically imagine that reality rises up to meet you, and light flows in from all sides, above and below, in all directions to the sides. From moment to moment, day to day, providing you with all that you truly need. As you arouse this yearning of loving kindness, may I be truly well and happy and receive all that I need from the world around me. Just as you don't need to take the breath in, but allow it to flow freely in, imagine with each in-breath this light from all the world around converging in upon your body and mind, filling you with light.
order to realize such fulfillment, clearly it's not enough to have assistance from those around us. There must obviously be profound transformation taking place within. We have created the bonds that bind us. So in the same spirit of metta or loving-kindness, raise another question. In order to realize your own fulfillment, from what qualities, behavioral tendencies, traits, would you love to be free? And with what qualities of behavior, qualities of mind, of speech, would you love to be imbued? to enable you to realize the greatest possible fulfillment. In other words, imagine your own spiritual evolution, your transformation, your purification, all in a spirit of loving-kindness to enable you to find the happiness that is your heart's desire. And then with each out-breath, arouse the yearning, may it be so. May I transform in such a way that I may indeed realize genuine happiness, fulfillment. And as you breathe out once again, imagine rays of this light of loving-kindness, this light of joy emanating from your heart, saturating, permeating your body and mind. And with every out-breath, as you arouse this yearning, imagine becoming free. Imagine transforming into the person you'd love to become.
here and now. Imagine being the person you'd love to become. a final question. In order to realize your own fulfillment, your own genuine happiness, let's take stock of the simple reality that none of us lives in isolation and all of us are constantly making an imprint, making an impact on the world around us. We breathe out, the air becomes warmer. We engage with people, we influence them. Every moment we're making our mark. To imbue your own life with the greatest possible meaning and fulfillment and joy. Consider now a great question. What would you love to offer to the world? What kind of a mark would you love to make? So when, at the end of your life, you look back and you recall the type of influence you've had on those around you and at the world at large, you will die without regret and you'll know this is a life well-led. There will be fulfillment in the moment and at the end. Consider now what would you love to offer to the world uniquely to your own personal contribution.
Well, Lasso, that session could have gone on a little bit longer as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> to, if we had a few more minutes, I'm happy to go with the bell. But then you breathe out, as you can probably imagine. Then just bring it, breathe out from your heart. And you can linger there. You can linger there. Just let your imagination play. Breathing out, breathing out. So it's a variation on a theme that some of you will be familiar with called in Tibetan Tonglen, where one takes in and sends out. In that classic practice, what you do is you imagine taking in the suffering and the causes of suffering of others and imagine dissolving into your heart and then sending out a sense of well-being, happiness, the causes of happiness to others. So it's again a withdrawal and, and a release, withdrawal and release, very familiar free, uh, theme by now. But this whole practice we did here is simply a variation on the theme of loving-kindness. And it's very much rooted in the teachings of the Buddha when he taught about loving-kindness or metta, that we start at home, start at home, start with loving-kindness directed towards ourselves. In fact, at one point the Buddha said, one who truly loves himself will never, never harm another. I think it's a very deep truth, because you would know immediately that by harming another, you're damaging yourself. So. Let's try now to bring these, the cognitive and the, well, the mind and the heart, heart and mind, the cognitive and the luminous, bring these together, segue these together. In the Theravada tradition, sometimes, not, not often, but sometimes when there are references to the bhavanga, this continuum of consciousness, they say it's of the very nature of loving-kindness. The very nature of loving-kindness. It's a wellspring of loving-kindness. The experience of that may vary from one person to another. And also, it's not just a state in which you come to rest. And that's one possibility. But it's also one that you can nurture, that you can till, that you can cultivate, and see then what springs from it. This bhavanga, or let's slip over into the Dzogchen terminology, this substrate consciousness, or alaivichnana. You may have encountered, if you've read Mahayana Buddhist texts, you may have encountered the phrase storehouse consciousness. Storehouse consciousness. Referring to the same term, this alai vijnana, this continuum of consciousness that carries on through waking state, dreaming, deep sleep, as a storehouse, a repository of, on the one hand, memories, but also behavioral tendencies. And if we slip into purely Buddhist terminology, karma or karmic imprints, imprints that have been imprinted upon this continuum of consciousness by way of our actions of body, speech, and mind. So when you're simply resting in it, you're not seeing any imprints. You're just resting in a luminous, blissful, silent space. According to both the Theravada tradition and the Mahayana and on into the Dzogchen, simply resting in the substrate consciousness or the bhavanga just coming back to it like an addict, you know. Not useful. Not useful. It's not transformative. It's not transformative. Overall, this bhavanga or this substrate consciousness is regarded as ethically neutral. So to hang out there doesn't make you a worse person, but it doesn't make you a better person either. No virtues are being cultivated. You're just hanging out in a blissful, luminous, 
non-conceptual space. And so it's rather like treading water in the, in, the, in the middle of the ocean of samsara. Your head's above water. It may be kind of pleasant if you're down in Tahiti or so forth, but it's not going anywhere. But the whole point of achieving that is not to take it as an end in itself, but to use this resoundingly clear, luminous, pliant, malleable, supple, still awareness and activate it and put it to good use. So that's really a distinctive characteristic of the Buddhist utilization of shamatha that is not an end in itself, or as seductive as that can be, and it is very seductive, um, but to utilize it for very, very meaningful, I mean profoundly, ultimately meaningful endeavors, such as the practice of vipassana, to irreversibly liberate the mind and not, and not simply bring it into this pleasant state, on the one hand, but on the other hand, and this is why we have you know, these two themes of balancing heart and mind in this short weekend, it's not just all about shamatha and vipassana. As enormously important as that is, the Buddha at one point, I think it was in the Mahayana Sutras, a statement attributed to the Buddha, said that skillful means, which is really where the loving kindness, the compassion, or bodhicitta resides, the bodhisattva's motivation, that skillful means without wisdom is bondage. And that is, if all we're cultivating are these noble, noble virtues of loving-kindness, compassion, altruism, and so forth, but there's no wisdom. It's bondage. And he said, wisdom without skillful means is bondage. That wisdom without, that is not coupled with and unified with compassion, altruism, loving-kindness, bondage. So suggesting that only with these two wings of enlightenment, to use a classic Buddhist metaphor, only with those two wings then do we fly to liberation. So the substrate, to tweak that a little bit more. How significant is it to rest in that substrate? Well, to get there, the mind has to be superbly balanced. And moreover, just very briefly, a lot could be said about this. But when you emerge from this achievement of shamatha, access to the first jhana, resting in the substrate consciousness, and you're out and about, maybe engaging with family, drinking some tea, doing shopping, all the stuff we do, is... Is it just like having taken a psychedelic and that wears off and it's back to normal, or are there any trait effects? So we have state effects, about which a lot can be said and we don't have time, but more state effects can be discussed about what's it like to dwell in that state. The core of it, it's blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. That'll pretty well do. But what's really significant, and we had an intimation of this earlier when the Buddha spoke of mindfulness of breathing. He said it's peaceful, it's sublime, an ambrosial dwelling, and has a big impact on your overall mental health and well-being because it's dis- what was it disperses and quells on the spot unwholesome states when they arise. Now, that's got to be a good thing, right? And it's not only when you're resting in shamatha, isolated from the rest of the world with a big sign in your cave, don't bother me, <laughs> you know, because I'm enjoying this cloistered virtue. In fact, it's much better than that. So shamatha is really quite significant, not only for the serenity, the centeredness, and all of that, while resting in that state of mental equilibrium, but you come out, and there are very significant and enduring trait effects. And this is really, this is where a lot of the juice is. And that is, overall, your psychological immune system is much, much higher. So even in between sessions, mental afflictions have a hard time capturing you. They don't arise nearly as often, and when they do, they don't have much oomph. They don't have the gripping power they used to. So they have a tough road to hoe. I think, I think of those poor mental afflictions as like the salmon trying to jump up the stream to spawn. You look at them, it's a really tough deal to do. 
one rapid after another, when they finally get there, they just die, right? Their flesh is so beaten up, they don't even bother to swim down, downstream. And I think of the poor mental afflictions in the, in the, in the mind stream of a person as chief shamatha. It's just, it's a tough road to hoe. I mean, they just give up for a minute and they're just swept down again. So poor mental afflictions, poor craving, poor hostility, really tough for them. Because the mind is just so naturally serene, balanced, healthy, happy. That what do you need mental afflictions for? You know? So that's a good thing. And of course that will impact your behavior. It impacts the dream state and so forth and so on. But coming back to that substrate consciousness, how significant is it when the claim is that this is what's left over when you hit the, de- when you hit the dead point, the culmination of the dying process, as we have settling, 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 settling the mind, settled, and you've slipped into the substrate consciousness, you're no longer settling the mind. It's a done deal. You have settled your mind in its natural state, and that is the substrate consciousness. Well, in a very similar fashion, we have falling asleep, falling asleep, falling asleep. Oh, stage four, deep sleep. You've made it. There's nowhere to go from here. You've come to the deep sleep state. And then we have this, the third analog, and that is dying, dying, dying. Oh, dead. You finished. You've co- accomplished. Mission accomplished. If you're trying to die, you succeeded. You've made it. Victory is yours. You know? And where have you arrived? At the substrate consciousness. Oh, falling asleep, shamatha, dying. All these are the same place. Now, one of the really good pieces of news here, and you'll get, check it out before, but you might have a hard time reporting, is that if you achieve shamatha and really come to know luminously, discerningly, the substrate, the substrate consciousness through your own immediate, luminously clear experience, then when you enter into, eventually, the dying process, and this will not hasten that, by the way, it's a very healthy thing to do, but when you eventually are in the dying process and you come to the culmination of the dying process and you hit the dead zone, you can actually be dead luminously. That is, as there's lucid dreaming and there's lucid deep sleep, there's also lucid dead. And as to be dead and know it. <laughs> Most people, when they hit the dead point, they're about as aware of that as people are when they're in deep sleep or when they're fully anesthetized. Yeah, you're anesthetized. What can you tell about it? I don't know. I wasn't there. So for most people, if they're just dying in a normal fashion, as they're dying, they're losing, losing, losing consciousness, and then they enter into what's called the blackout phase. Nothing to report. Just like that. It's very easy at this point to think, okay, if one says anything more, then you're slipping into the realm of metaphysics, religion, and so forth, into the realm of the believers. Believers. Look out for them. Whereas if you're a skeptic and a non-believer then you're just a realist, and you know that what happens then is total termination, lights out, you're obliterated. And so live with it, because that's realistic. That's just a belief. It may be true, I don't know. I'd be frankly astonished if it's true. (laughs) Really, it will just totally blow my mind. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is that the great strength of modern science as a whole is observing physical, objectifiable, objective phenomena. Physical, quantitative, and or quantifiable and objective. Physical, quantifiable, objective. Science is fantastic at that. Much better than Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism. Man, the methods are fantastic. The technology is awe-inspiring. But if that's your methodology for studying everything from consciousness to galactic clusters, then you can be absolutely certain that if that's your trajectory, if that's your methodology, the conclusions will be in accordance with your methodology. 
the conclusions will be that whatever you're discussing will be understood in terms of physical, quantifiable, and objective terms. What else, would, what else would you come up with? Come on, right? And so if you're studying the mind by way of studying behavior and brain states, the physical, the, objectifi the, objectifi the objective, and the quantifiable, you will necessarily come to a conclusion about the nature of consciousness, that it's physical, it's emerging from the physical, and when the physical plant shuts down, the brain goes dead, consciousness vanishes. may be true, but mm, that deck was stacked. I would never play in that casino. Because you know with those kind of questions, you know what the answer is going to be before you even start playing. Because they cannot possibly come to, oh, gee, consciousness continues after the brain is dead. They can't, even, can, they can't even observe consciousness when the brain isn't dead. So, I figure people who say there's no evidence for the continuity of individual consciousness after death, they're looking in a very safe place where there couldn't possibly be any evidence. So why should we consider that even evidence at all? Now, a friend of mine here, David, a consultant with some very intrepid, bold researchers at the University of Virginia. Man, I must, I must say I really admire their courage because they're asking questions that are absolutely heretical. And investigating rigorously empirical evidence, is there any empirical evidence, not religious belief or metaphysical speculation, empirical evidence gained through very rigorous, scrupulous, critical, non-dogmatic empirical inquiry into evidence for continuity. They've come up with some really startling, amazing results, and I must say I'm astounded at the efficacy of the scientific establishment for ignoring the data. I mean, it's really, we don't even have a Politburo here. We don't even have a government that shuts down the internet and makes sure we can't look at certain sites. And still so effective, it really blows my mind. It's really very, very effective censorship. There it is. So I will approach this then from an agnostic perspective, because after all, what do I know? But I do know that if all your questions are physical, all your answer is going to be physical. You don't need to be an Einstein to figure that one out. So that's not even evidence. That's a game that you know who's going to win. The house will always win, because the house stark stacked the deck. What about if you're looking at something that displays no physical characteristics at all? Consciousness. No mass, no spin, no location. No electric charge, not a single physical quality at all, and you can observe it. And you observe it right down to its rest state, into the substrate consciousness. When a yogi is resting in this state of substrate consciousness, is there any, and alive and well, is anything happening in the brain? And of course, it's just a stupid question, because of course something's happening in the brain. A lot's happening in the brain. Can we therefore jump with confidence to the conclusion, therefore, Whatever is taking place in the brain while the yogi is doing that is necessary for, to generate that state of consciousness. It's a very plausible hypothesis. But is it true? And can it even be tested? And I've read quite a number of books that say you just can't say, you can't do any test at all because once you're dead, you're dead and you can't report. Maybe not true. So are there experiments that can be run Focusing on this experience, not a belief, but an experience of the substrate consciousness. Experiments that can be run to see, is this actually generated by the brain, or does the brain merely configure it? Then the brain goes dead, the configuration unravels, consciousness reverts back to its, its stem consciousness, and continues waiting to be configured again. I could spend the whole afternoon on this, 
But I've, I have some friends, some people I've encountered that say these are trivial questions because after all, all we really need to do is just be here now. This is life. Attend to the present moment. And whatever happens after death, well, whatever. It'll, we'll get to it sooner or later. If it's oblivion, oblivion, otherwise not. And I must say, I just think that's terribly trite thinking. That's just my judgment. Sorry, but that is. Um, if it's significant that the Earth is not at the center of the universe and the stars are not simply decorations for us, if that's significant, even though how many of us are going to ever travel to the moon, let alone beyond, but if that's significant to actually know that we're one planet around one star in 100 billion stars in one galaxy, of which there are about 100 billion, as opposed to this is the whole show and it's 7,000 years old. I think that's important, actually. You know. <laughs> I mean, if knowing reality is a good thing, I think knowing that this isn't a 7,000-year short story with Earth in the center and white men really at the center of that, um, I think that's kind of important, you know? And I did say white men, not you women. White men. I think that's really important. And consider just the scenario. I mean, what kind of situation are we in here? Is life a short story, and do you get the third noble truth just by stopping breathing? which frankly is an enormous relief if that's true. All I have to do is go and then not breathe in. You've just hit the third noble truth. <laughs> Cessation of suffering and the causes of suffering. Hallelujah, Eureka. The only downside is I won't be there to enjoy it. <laughs> but at least all the suffering vanished. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Whereas consider that scenario as opposed to there is no exit strategy, strategy out of reality ever, ever, ever. Oh, man. In other words, I was about to say, give me a break. There isn't one. There's just nothing you can do to totally kamikaze out of the universe. Nowhere to go. That consciousness, there's a conservation of consciousness. Every bit is indelible, if not more so. Or in, how do you say it? There's another word. Not indelible, but inexorable. There's the word. Inexorable. Every bit is inexorable. There's a conservation of mass energy. What if, just what if? I'm not here to, pr to promulgate any doctrine. They're so doggone boring. It's like wearing a backpack full of beliefs. But what if this can be investigated empirically? And what if it already has? What if the experiments can be replicated? And what if it's true? That, in terms of a shift of worldview, I'd say that's more radical. That's more radical than the 7,000-year-old universe with Earth, planet Earth in the middle. The notion that this is a continuum of consciousness and it cannot terminate. That's big. There are experiments that have been done, can be done, should be done, that may give rise to the greatest revolution in the mind sciences with massive tsunami-like repercussions for all the rest of the sciences if consciousness is not simply an accidental effulgence from neuronal activity. If it is, I can really live with it and die with it. I mean, really, who cares? I mean, so you're dead, you're dead. Ha. Who cares? So life is a short story. Ha. Whatever. But if it continues, oh, man. The questions that raises are absolutely staggering. And they change everything. They really change everything. So we come over, that's the cognizant aspect of it. And we come over to this extraordinary quality of consciousness that consciousness illuminates one of the most obvious ways it does it, where there's just nothing else involved, is when you slip into the substrate consciousness as you fall asleep. 
And for the, for the time being, from your perspective, you're no longer male, female, you're not human or, or non-human. Your, your consciousness slipped into this stem consciousness, lights out. But if you're lucid, well then, lights on, but illuminating not much of anything except for the substrate, that vacuous space of the mind. And then something mysterious happens. It happens about five to seven times every night. And that is something subterranean, so to speak, something deep down, breaks this relative symmetry of consciousness, space, consciousness, space, consciousness, breaks the symmetry, kind of an evenness, a homogeneity in just resting in the substrate consciousness, attending to the substrate. There's no this and that. There's no imbalances there. It's even. It's a symmetry. And then something breaks the symmetry. I'm using words from physics that I think are not irrelevant. And then suddenly you have a world of this and that. The dreamscape, and I am here experiencing the dreamscape. Oh, I've got a body. And it may be like the body I have during the waking state, and maybe not. Maybe younger, older, could be gender switch, could be species switch, could be just a, a, how do you say, a disembodied awareness attending to the dreamscape. But suddenly there's this whole array of appearances, sometimes as lifelike, as realistic as during the waking state, and everything that's appeared is non-physical. There's not a single atom that comprises any of the physical, so-called physically, physical-looking things you see in the dream. And what you're seeing is just a, a display, a configured display of the luminosity of your own awareness. Now, clearly, it's brain activity. That's not even for que- in question. But the specific contents of the dream, are you dreaming of the Rocky Mountains or a seascape, being in a kitchen or in a workplace? This is not being configured by photons striking your closed eyes, sound waves coming to your ears where the auditory is pretty much shut down, right? In other words, the dreamscape is not being configured by your current environment. It's free play. It's a free play of your mind. Configured certainly by influences, past experiences and the like. But what you're seeing here is just a display of the luminosity of consciousness itself. Your consciousness displaying its creative ability, its creative powers. So frankly, a lucid dream, when you're dreaming and you know you're lucid, it is the perfect, ideal laboratory for the study of the mind. And why? Because everything you experience consists of no only configurations of the mind. You're not, getting, you're not getting access to a single physical phenomenon of any type, not a molecule, not a cell, nothing physical at all. Right? It's all configurations of mind. So that would be just the perfect laboratory, because throw a, throw a mental stone in any direction and it will strike a mental something else. Everything is mental. So fantastic display. The luminosity of the mind. But it's not only displaying appearances, but it is the very wellspring of imagination. As we envision, on the one hand, we have the cognizant practices, like this noble, I mean, it's just utterly, to my mind, majestic, array of practices in the Satipatthana, the four applications of mindfulness. It's, I just find that awesome, just utterly awesome. And what it's so focusing on is what is, what is actually taking place here and now and attending very closely to the body as it immediately arising, to the occurrence, the passing of feelings arising of all kinds, the whole array of mental events arising and attending to them closely, and this whole interface, this interdependent origination of the physical and engaging with the mental, the mind, with the body, all of these arising in this codependent origination, and it's attending to what is actually happening as opposed to what we're superimposing, imagining, assuming to be the case. 
It's splendid. And the whole emphasis there is on cognizance. Know it as it is. In the scene, let there be just the scene. The herd, just the herd, and so forth. In other words, get real. Really, get real. And that will sever the root of not getting real, namely ignorance and delusion. So we see it's way tilted over towards cognizance. It's attending to the world of actuality. What's really going on? Attend to it closely. So why not call it contemplative science? Because it is contemplative and it is by gum science. Right. Having said that, that's the wisdom element. That's one wing. But when we venture into this realm of loving kindness, as we did in the last session, we were not attending to the realm of actuality. Now, does this mean we're just smoking dope and going to the fantasy realm? Well, maybe. But what we're venturing into is not ridiculous. It's a realm of potentiality, a realm of possibility. And possibilities do exist, right? There's a possibility, and I'll tell you about it only after it's turned into actuality. You ready? A little while ago, that was only a possibility. You didn't know I was going to do that. But I had the thought, that's a possibility. And then it happened. Then it was an actuality. So that possibility was not a non-entity. Right? It was something I envisioned. It could happen. Why not do it? I see no reason not to do it. I want to do it. I'm doing it. You know? So we move from the realm of potentiality or possibility into actuality. The thing went up. The thing went down. It's a fait accompli. Done deal. Loving kindness is venturing into the world of possibility. Not yet true. But could I flourish in a more meaningful, deep, and enduring way, more satisfying and fulfilling way than I am now? Could life be profoundly and meaningfully different? Could I find a sense of well-being I've never experienced in the past? That's asking a question about the world of possibility. And not just saying, well, this is as happy as I've ever been, and then putting a lid on it. This whole notion I find ghastly. Really, it's just, it's, it's just awful notion that we have, what do they call it, a set point that we only have, we have an upper limit, like a leaden ceiling of how happy we can be. The way that, fra- that question is phrased is so trivial, I want to gag. Because ask questions like winning a lottery. Well, does anybody really think that winning a lottery you're going to be happier for the rest of your life? I mean, we have to be a dumbbell to think that. And so, of course, they found you win the lottery on that day, you're really happy, you have a big spike of happiness, and then you have to pay the taxes. <laughs> the happiness goes way down, and then all your neighbors some become somebody really, really friendly, and your happiness is going down. And, you know, of course that happens. Where's the big surprise in that? But to think that there's somehow indelibly imprinted in our very constitution here that you can only be this happy, and you can only be this happy, and, you know, that's it. Oh, man, why don't you just hit me on the head with a sledgehammer? You know? And the whole question is couched in the subjective, quantifiable, physical, hedonic context, there we go. So, you know, don't get your hopes up because you've got your, you know, your upper limit. So it's really a, wo- a world devoid of imagination. And I think to a large extent, this imagination deficit disorder has crept in too much mm-hmm. into science. Well, we can't even imagine certain things because it's not allowed or you'll be ridiculed if you go there. That's why I have such respect for these people at the University of Virginia. How intrepid. How intrepid. It's really quite amazing to ask the questions, let alone actually do the research. So, loving kindness is working, moving into the realm of possibility. Could genuine happiness be realized? If so, what is needed from the outside? What is needed from the inside? How would it manifest? How could it be brought to the outside? How could it manifest and be brought into the world? 
So these two, balancing the two, the cognizance and the world of actuality, the luminosity and the imagination, and the world of potentiality. And seeing how the two can not just be slapped one on top of another or oscillate from one to the other, but actually be integrated. That, I think, is really core. That's core. I think it's core to the Buddhist practice. I think it's core to spirituality as a whole. The cognizance and the luminosity, the core features of consciousness itself. So let's take a break, and then we'll come back and really start to unpack a little bit, even though time is very short. Uh, unpack these four measurables to see how marvelously these can complement and enrich the cultivation of insight of shamatha vipassana. So let's take a break. Let's come back at ten past. Ten past the hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.